Bienvenidos and welcome to the Jacobin Sports Show. I am Matthew Miranda, as always, here with Jonah Birch. This is episode four of the award-winning Someday podcast. You can follow us on Twitter at Jacobin Sports. You can email us any thoughts or questions at jacobinsports at gmail.com. Uh, we've already had one complaint about our Celtic discussion, so please keep the mail coming. Can we can we just go through that? You know, I want to hear can. about the, the the hate mail that we got. You know, the angry. <laughs> I think I'm with this. Uh, you know, whoever the listener was, I suspected was, you gotta, might be. Um, and it's not. It's, yeah. I will say it's not an unfair point. So <laughs> let me let me just summarize quickly. We received an email from Dave. Dave is a Celtic fan like Jonah. It afflicts people in all walks of life. And Dave mentioned listening to the second episode where we had um, Dave's iron on. And if you heard that episode at the very beginning of the broadcast, Dave, who is a native New Yorker, and myself were bonding over our shared upbringing of hating the Celtics and in particular being taught to think of the Celtics as the epitome of racism and regressive politics like in sports or certainly in the NBA and totally wrong and and yes to yeah. be factually correct you know if, if you need a disclaimer um, not everything you hear on the show is going to be um, literal you know beliefs we will mess around but the Boston Celtics first team in NBA history to hire a black coach first team to draft um, a black player first team to have and all five starting lineup made up of black players. Um, you know, really, it's it's Red Auerbach slander. That that's what we got in that episode. You know, more than anything, you know, an attack on the the greatest genius to ever grace the sidelines of an, an NBA court. So uh, I'm glad I'm glad we have listeners there to there to correct our the errors and the uh, you know deeply immoral and unfactual. <laughs> Uh, you know, critical statements about the Boston Celtics. I will I will yeah. read you Dave's final paragraph, which I think, in all fairness, is a good point about why it is important not to indulge these stereotypes too far. Dave at the end writes, there's plenty of racism in Boston, and it's true that we led the nation in high-profile ugliness in the mid-1970s. But it's bullshit that we are unique in the U.S. in that regard, and it lets the cops and real estate developers and politicians in every other U.S. city off the hook to portray Boston as somehow so much worse than everywhere else. I agree with Dave. I think that's the the classic um, trope of viewing the U.S. South as the racist part of the country um, and letting all the other parts off the hook. So good points, Dave. All fairly made. The Celtics. I want to devote. Go ahead. Yeah. No, I want to devote an entire episode to this. I, I, people misunderstand. They think Boston is still the Boston of Louise Day Hicks and Jimmy Kelly and busing. And actually, the racial inequality in Boston is the is the racism of big city liberal America. It's the most liberal city in the country, you know, or one of them, at least, certainly. I mean, maybe Boston and San Francisco. Trump did not win a single district. Uh, and it's a profoundly unequal city in the way that uh, that you know many Mer American cities are today. It's not what it was twenty years ago. It's actually a majority non-white city. Boston is at this point, which is different than in the nineteen seventies mm -hmm. uh, when it was three you know three quarters white. As was New York, by the way, mm -hmm. I think, or close to that. Uh, so you know, it's it, there's a deep misunderstanding there. 
But more than anything, when Philly sports fans, you know, I want to say they attack Boston as a racist city. I want to say, listen, Frank Rizzo, you know, you go watch Rocky, and you know, and, 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 and this is one of those let uh, he who was without sin cast the first stone type situations. But I, uh, that is actually it's worth discussing. It, it definitely is worth an entire episode of the bo- uh, the podcast. Racism in Boston. Now that we've, anyway, now that, I mean, there, a lot of ugliness. Yeah. Now that we've made amends with our Boston viewers, the inbox is flooding <laughs> with hate from Philadelphia listeners. So we will take that on next week. Um, in today's episode, we're going to briefly touch on um, the Super Bowl, the Major League Baseball Hall of Fame vote that was just recently held, and one or two NBA quick hitters. And then our main thrust of today's pod will be. Uh, a discussion of the English Premier League, a lot of early seasoned trends, observations, and uh, one or two larger picture questions with um, our guest, Avanika Goswami, who will be here in a little bit. But let's open with the Super Bowl. Um, just real quick, a couple quick hitters. And Jonah, Super Bowl is coming up. It's a big day for many, many people. The world, humanity, humanity Tom Brady. Uh, humanity at large. Tom. In that order. Yes. yes. <laughs> Tom Brady in particular. <laughs> Anything you are thinking, feeling, looking forward to? How interested are you in this Super Bowl versus your average okay. Super Bowl? Well, in your average Super Bowl, the 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 my New England Patriots are involved. So I'm very, <laughs> you know, interested <laughs> in that. But in this one, they're not. You know, I guess my main... You know, the thing I'm interested in, besides will Tom Brady win a seven Super Bowl, was uh, I saw the line was three and a half, you know, for Kansas City. Uh, the real question for me is the over-under on number of Chiefs players who will be ruled out of the Super Bowl with COVID. Now, I don't know if you saw that their barber tested uh, positive. I did I tested not. positive. Apparently, the results came back while the Chiefs players were in line to get haircuts. So uh, wow. they they brought in a replacement barber or just like stopped the haircuts. Uh, so, uh, you know, this is wow. it's like love in the time of cholera and Super Bowl in the time of COVID, you know, yeah. or this is a, a great novel waiting to happen, you know, mm-hmm. historical novel. So, I, you know, we'll see. We'll see if that will hurt Kansas City, if they're going to have a significant loss of personnel. I uh, wonder how far the infections would have to go for the NFL to consider postponing the Super Bowl. Yeah. So, you know, uh, it would have to be uh, half of both teams or Tom Brady. Uh, You know, either one of those, you know, would would get them. I don't even think Pat Mahomes would do it, but Tom Brady would do it. No, you're right. Tom Brady uh, would. Yeah. Can't... uh, you know, you can't have a Super Bowl without Tom Brady, I think, as we've learned. Why Do you have a prediction? Yes, I predict that Tom Brady will contract COVID. The Buccaneers will replace him with Eli Manning, and Eli will lead the Buccaneers <laughs> to an astonishing upset. I keep Really twisting in the knife there. I like it. You know. <laughs> I keep coming around to a comparison a lot of people have made. I don't know how entirely accurate it is, but... The idea that, that Brady actually now is in the position that the Giants were in the year that they played the 18-0 Patriots, that um, they're playing this just offensive juggernaut at the top of its game, but you have this opponent that is a good team with a, a good pass rush, and if if they're able to get enough pressure, like that can be 
that it's possible they can win, that they, they definitely have a chance to win following that formula. And maybe because I keep hearing it, but I keep thinking more and more like, for like two minutes every day, I'm like, I really think, yeah, Tampa could ride that. And then I'm like, how are you stopping no, Kansas City? Like, like no, if, you, if, if Kansas City scores 24, that's not a bad job by the Tampa defense. That's not bad. If you, if you could tell Tampa right now or tell any team like Kansas City 24, you would take it. But are we convinced that the Patriots will score almost 30 points? Because they, they, I'm sorry. <laughs> uh, obvious slip. <laughs> Obviously, it, it's infecting me. Um, <laughs> are we convinced that Tampa Bay is going to score enough points to win the game, even if they hold Kansas City to a respectable low to mid-20s number? No, not at all. Yeah. I mean, one of the things that people don't talk about is that even in the these great Patriots runs, uh, you know, for several of the games, including the last one that they won against the Rams, the Patriots offense severely underperformed in the, mm-hmm. you know, in the Super Bowl compared to how they had done earlier. Tom Brady threw three picks in the NFC Championship game. Yes, he did. Who knows what's going to happen? You know, I, I really, you have no idea. And Kansas City is notorious for their slow starts. And mm-hmm. uh, they're sure. just a dominant, a dominant offense. So it could be a Chiefs blowout. You know, mm-hmm. uh, it's entirely possible. Mm-hmm. Now, it is in Tampa, obviously, you know, the game. So that'll help. And, I, you know, I, I just, I wouldn't, I wouldn't pick against Tom Brady, you know. I, I wouldn't. Next episode, we will certainly discuss our Super Bowl reactions. Moving yeah, on to a sport that most people follow for reasons other than gambling, which is Major League Baseball. Major League Baseball once again had its annual Hall of Fame vote. There were 401 ballots, and has, as has often been the case in recent years, there's a lot of controversy around the voting in particular for candidates who are linked with performance-enhancing drugs or racist insurrections. Let's start with the latter. Kurt Schilling got the greater number of votes. You need 75% to be inducted. Schilling received 71.1%. So very, very close, closest he's been so far. Historically, players who get that high in the vote almost invariably are elected the next time, but... There is nothing common about Kurt Schilling or Kurt Schilling's case. Jonah, I don't know where you stand in the purity of the Major League Baseball Hall of Fame. A lot of people have defended Schilling on the grounds that, hey, there's a lot of bad people in the Hall of Fame. There's racists, there's degenerates, there's a lot of scumbags in the Hall of Fame. And therefore, Kurt Schilling, and by extension, many people will argue Barry Bonds, Roger Clemens, um, players with unquestionable resumes, but also linked with cheating, should or should not be in. So where do you stand on this? You know, so first of all, Schilling gets 71% of the vote and then writes a letter saying, I don't want to be considered by the baseball writers next year. I'll only be considered by the Veterans Committee after that, you know, which is kind of the, the back the back route into uh, the Baseball Hall of Fame. Mm-hmm. I, uh, look, I, this guy is a lunatic. I mean, what a, uh, a, a nut job Kurt Schilling is, honestly. I get it. You really, really hate people who are transgender and you really, you know, 
the the election was fixed and Trump wants, you know, you you love Donald Trump. But I you know, the the victim complex is just incredible. It's unbelievable. He's ruined his reputation, his legacy even in Boston despite the 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 bloody sock game and, you know, winning the 2004 World Series. But the funniest part is that he has a middling Hall of Fame resume. He called him. He said himself, I, "I shouldn't be a Hall of Famer. I don't consider myself a Hall of Famer." And he won the highest percentage of votes from the Baseball Writers of America. Mm-hmm. And, I, and when I look at this list, it's so offensive to me. Uh, honestly, forget Kurt Schilling. The fact that Scott Rowland is fourth, Omar Vizquel is fifth, Billy Wagner is sixth, and way down the line is Manny Ramirez, the greatest right-handed hitter of his generation. Oh, why? Because you're all, you know, everyone is, it, you're so upset about steroids. Ugh. You know, you only vote for the people that weren't doing steroids during this era, as if you have any clue. You know, and then they're like uh, the these moral arbiters of goodness, very upset about baseball players cheating in the late 90s and the early 2000s. You know, everyone knows that during the 1950s and 60s, every single baseball player in the country was besides often being serious alcoholics, taking methamphetamines before every game, right? They had bowls of them out in the clubhouses, uh, uh, on, you know, major league clubhouses, greenies, right? They called them. Yes. That's how they played 150 and then 162 games after staying out all night drinking. So if if you're so upset about performance-enhancing drugs, kick everyone out of, the, out of the, the Hall of Fame who was inducted during that period because literally, basically, they were all on drugs. And the idea that you would not elect Barry Bonds, Roger Clemens, or Manny Ramirez, or Sammy, Sammy Sosa is ridiculous to me, just so bizarre to me, uh, and particularly that you put people like medi- you know, not mediocrities, but good, not great players like Scott Rowland and Omar Vizquel over someone like Manny Ramirez. I I, I just can't take it. I, I can't stand it. Baseball writers are, are maybe the worst people in the country and definitely have no business deciding anything like who should be in the Hall of Fame. That is that is my opinion. They're way worse than basketball writers, even worse than football writers. I have no opinion on hockey writers because whoever reads them, you know, but I, they're really the worst, honestly. Thoughts? I was hoping you'd have a strong opinion, so I'm a little disappointed um, in your take. I will a, f- a few a few things I think hearing that, um, and one I, I want to thank you in particular again for going after Scott Rowland and Billy Wagner to ensure that the Philly audience is just completely never tuning into us again after this. No, week. let's go to war, Philadelphia. <laughs> it's it's me and you. Um, <laughs> as an occasional moral arbiter of goodness, um, I will make a distinction. One distinction, because I I am definitely of the opinion I'm not bothered at all by players from the 90s not getting in, not a bit. And I think a difference between, you're right, that certainly there were performance-enhancing substances. Um, They had in in the locker room before games, the players, the teams always had a coffee pot that was filled with um, a particular, like, juiced up, like, green, greenied up. The players knew, you know, everybody knew. I think what I've always wondered about as, as I think a difference in that scale of chemical enhancement versus the 90s. I don't know this for a fact, but my assumption is that in the 1950s and 60s, like the New York Yankees probably didn't have 
significantly superior methamphetamine to this Pittsburgh Pirates. Like they were probably all basically getting the same stuff. I don't know, but I'm guessing there wasn't an enormous meth market for to differentiate, you know, tiers. One thing that always bothered me in the 90s, or when I became aware of it, I'd say more in the 2000s, about the scale of the drug cheating in Major League Baseball is that my assumption there is that there are probably class-specific tiers that emerge. Like, Alex Rodriguez can probably take better drugs than Joe McEwing could because of how much the industry had evolved and given the scale of things. And I don't think it's a surprise that Still today, most of the suspensions I see in baseball are minor league Dominican players who probably are not getting the same stuff that whoever's cheating in baseball today is taking, not pointing any fingers. We'll have that in another episode. But I have no problem with Schilling not getting in because he's an asshole. Like, I don't ca- I'm not swayed by the opinion that, well, there's assholes in the Hall of Fame, so we have to let in more of them. No, you don't. Like, there can the Hall of Fame did not get you know, zipped onto stone tablets by God and that we don't have to have it. So I'm not at all bothered by the reality that, you know what, you're not, you're not clearly a hall. As you said, it's not a, it's not a foolproof resume that Shillian has. His postseason history is great, but this isn't, you know, Clemens. It's not that situation at all. It's not, you know, Bonds. And I'm fine with both of them being out for different reasons, but I don't think the Hall of Fame has to indulge at all that well we've we've let in bad this isn't a guy who cheated at cards or whatever moral standard you want to give like he, he supported a racist no, but you roger know? clemens yeah oh sure like sure that's a that's yeah, but- a difference like if benedict arnold had a gold glove you'd have people today being like you know what i know he betrayed the country but he really was a great second baseman like but listen, if 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 they're kicking people out of the hall, the baseball hall of fame for being racist, then there's not going to be a lot of people left in the baseball hall of fame. I mean, Ty Cobb was in the wasn't he in the Ku Klux Klan? Uh, you know, at the beginning of the, and I I don't believe in comparing people who have terrible political and moral opinions to people who tried to get a leg up and you know and in, in the game in the late nineties when. To be honest, who knows? I think everyone was doing basically the same stuff. Sure, every they were all looking for an advantage. Fair enough. But Barry Bonds is the greatest left-hand hitter since Babe Ruth. You know, there's just I no two ways. I thought he was the greatest of, uh, player I'd seen in my lifetime. Like, I've always thought you that. look at in in the early 2000s, he's getting on base almost six every out of every ten times he comes to the plate. Now. Okay, fine. You don't like the substances he's putting in his body and who knows what other players were doing and, mm-hmm. you know. But there's there's no way around the fact that if there is a Baseball Hall of Fame, if it is supposed to include the greatest players of their era, then he and Roger Clemens are among them. And I, I just don't buy that you can you can put all that down to, you know, whatever HGH or whatever. I, I, I don't believe that. You know, I don't, I don't accept that any more than I think you could put Mickey Mantle's greatness down to whatever, you know, baby meth he was taking in the 50s and the 60s. A longer discussion. We will have a baby meth yeah. episode very soon. <laughs>
So we are very excited today for our guest, um, Ivanka Goswami, covers um, Liverpool for the Liverpool Offside site at SB Nation. We're very lucky to have her. It is just after seven in the morning where she is in Delhi, which is not the case where we are. So we are extremely grateful for her being here with us early in the morning. Uh, Ivanka, welcome to the program. How are you doing? I'm doing great. Thank you so much for uh, having me. Super excited for the Jacobin Sports Show to take off and uh, be really successful. So glad to be one of your early guests. Awesome. Yeah. Thank yeah. you so much. Um, early in more way than one. True. You true. Know, more, <laughs> Very yeah. true. Sure. So we want to talk today about a couple of English Premier League issues, and we will start with uh, the club that you cover the most, Liverpool, who. After almost four years without a league loss at Anfield, lost at home for the second straight game, this time 1-0 to Brighton. Were you surprised by today's result, given the kind of inconsistent nature that Liverpool has had this season? Or did this does it seem to you like this is pretty much how the year has gone? So, uh, yeah, I didn't uh, watch last night's game. It was uh, at two in the morning for me, uh, but I woke up to it. Unfortunately, I wish I hadn't. Um, <laughs> right. uh, at this point, you know, uh, it's it's both a yes and no response. Um, yes, I'm surprised because we should have done better against Brighton, uh, who are, they're a decent mid-table team, but uh, considering mm-hmm. uh, the kind of prowess we have in various parts of the field, um, we could have done a better job. Considering we've had a bit of a revival over the past two games, we did well against Tottenham Hotspur, defeating them 3-1. We did great against West Ham. So it seems like it seemed like that slump uh, had kind of been crossed and uh, we were on the upward move once again. But uh, from that point of view, uh, I'm definitely surprised. Uh, also not that surprised, um, to be honest, though uh, the injury crisis that we're going through right now, uh, at least yeah. in the minds of Liverpool fans uh, and for most clubs, it's 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 a near catastrophic uh, situation in a way. We're missing the world's best central defender, Vir- Virgil van Dijk. In this particular game against Brighton, uh, we were missing our first choice uh, goalkeeper, Alison Becker, who's out due to a stomach issue, I believe, um, a stomach bug. Um, We're also missing Sadio Mane, who plays in attack on the left-hand side and is uh, currently considered one of the best players in the Premier League. Uh, So I think yesterday it just got to a point where the injury crisis just became uh, way too much for our squad depth to overcome. So uh, from that point of view, possibly no. <laughs> you know, Ivanica, as a, a fellow Reds fan, which let's be honest, all decent, progressive minded people should be. <laughs> you know, it's the only moral team uh, to root for in the in the Premier League. After the 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 joy that was last season, uh, this has just been it's been tough to take, honestly. I mean, it's tough to watch. Uh, a team struggles so much against Burnley and Brighton, and I, the hope has been drained away. It feels like no. Yeah, the the world of pain is back once again. <laughs> In the pre twenty <laughs> pre twenty seventeen feelings uh, are coming back. The pre yogurt love feelings are coming back. But uh, you know what? I I, I don't think uh, it's a permanent situation. At least I don't like to. Um, I wouldn't like to believe it's a permanent situation. 
we still have Jurgen Klopp. Uh, we have some incredible players um, out with injury right now. Um, and once they're back, once Diogo Jota is back, once our first choice central defenders are back, I do believe um, the situation will improve from here. But it's not going to be this season um, at this point. I think at the end of the West Ham game, I, I allowed myself a glimmer of hope, which you should never do as a Liverpool fan. Never, <laughs> never um, hey. indulge yourself with hope and hopes and dreams. Uh, I did that at the end of the West Ham game. Uh, and I thought that it's possible that, you know, oh, maybe a title challenge could be mounted. Um, of course, I was punished. Um, I don't think it's happening for us. Uh, well, I quite definitive, definitively think it's not happening for us this season. Uh, but I think we'll be back um, considering the players who we have, who will be available next season onwards. So, you know, obviously the last few, the last month, there, besides uh, the last, besides the Tottenham and West Ham games, the team has uh, struggled to score goals. But the biggest issues, as you said, were in central defense and losing Virgil van Dijk and Joe Gomez and then Joel Mati. Uh, you know, it's going to be a problem for, for anyone. They made a couple of transfer moves to bring in central defenders. I'm wondering what you think of the, the, the two people they're bringing in and what you think of the, the young players. I mean, Nat Phillips has, you know, has played pretty well, had uh, an issue on the goal today. And then uh, Reese Williams. And then, you know, Jordan Henderson, our, our lord and savior, who stepped in and, uh, you know, has played really wonderfully, obviously. Uh, but, uh, yeah, I guess particularly the two transfer moves and, and what, what kind of resources do you think they have back there going forward? Uh, yeah, definitely. Um, so I think I'll start off with, uh, you know, our, our homegrown situation. So in the absence of uh, the most bizarre injury crisis where we lost all of our first choice central defenders. Um, as you said, Virgil van Dijk, Joe Gomez, and now uh, recently Joel Matip is out for the rest of the season as well. We did have uh, Reese Williams and Nat Phillips um, sort of filling in and really uh, punching above their weight, um, you know, trying to deputize in that role. And uh, to be honest, Reese Williams isn't there yet in terms of uh, experience and maturity. He, has, he still has a few years to go to develop and reach uh, the heights uh, that are required, especially um, the central defense role in a team like Liverpool. It's, it's quite unique. You need defenders who are extremely fast. Uh, considering the high line that the team plays. So you need them to track back uh, at immense speed. Um, you also need them to have uh, extremely assertive uh, 1v1 man versus man defending ability uh, to sort of nullify any counterattacks that might happen on the break. So that's asking a lot out of a kid who was playing in multiple leagues lower till just last season and is now expected to perform at the Premier League, uh, one of the most competitive leagues in the whole world. Um, the same goes for Nat Phillips. I mean, he he was pretty great in the West Ham game, definitely. Uh, yesterday, I heard there was an unfortunate situation. But again, asking too much of players who just haven't had the kind of uh, exposure that is required at that level. Fabinho has been immense. Uh, he has filled in that role uh, at centre-back. Um, no questions asked. And apparently this was in the planning, a few years in the planning. So back in 2018, uh, there was some sort of a, you know, there were 
questions about who would deputize at center back in case we face this situation. And Fabinho had been preparing for this uh, this particular role and he has been incredible. But Fabinho's presence at center back means that we lose out his incredible holding midfielder qualities in midfield and regaining possession advancing the ball forward to our front three. We've missed out on those qualities in midfield with Fabinho being there. The same with Henderson. Jordan Henderson, the ultimate leader who will do anything that is asked of him, absolutely, and do it with 100% commitment. Um, but we've missed him in midfield. Uh, so it's great that they have brought in uh, Ozan Kabak and Ben Davies now, albeit to... Um, it's, it's important to mention the timeline hasn't been great. It, it sort of reeks of a bit of desperation considering they waited for the last day of the January transfer window to, to make <laughs> these announcements, <laughs> which, I mean, uh, yes, it was great business. We got these two young uh, defenders in for a total of some three million pounds. Um, another great set of uh, dealing done by uh, Michael Edwards, the sporting director at Liverpool. But uh, the timeline can definitely be questioned. Why did they wait so long? Um, why weren't reinforcements considered earlier and so on? Why weren't they considered in the summer when, uh, you know, you knew that there isn't uh, a suitable enough backup for Gomez and Van Dijk, um, you know, if something like this happens? But both of these players, um, Ozan Kabak has been on Liverpool's radar for a while. Um, so he was linked with us heavily back in the summer. And uh, it's incredible, again, um, speaking to Michael Edwards's deal-making abilities, uh, Schalke, who's the German club from which we bought Ozan Kabak, valued him at about 40 million pounds back in the summer, which was brought down to about 20 million, uh, considering COVID-19 made everything very difficult and yeah, yeah. transfers uh, quite sticky as well. Uh, and we've acquired him now for 1.5 million pounds, which is uh, <laughs> some sort of sorcery, uh, as always. Um, and uh, Ben Davies uh, uh, has come from uh, a championship level side, Preston uh, North End, and he is supposed to have qualities similar to Virgil van Dijk. Um, but he's most likely going to be more of a squad player. Um, you know, he's probably going to be on the bench a fair amount and then sort of come up when called upon. But definitely two great options to have. I am very reticent as the only Manchester City fan in this discussion to talk about their recent play, but journalistic responsibility demands that I point out that Man City won, league-leading Man City won 2-0 over Burnley. They did. Um, they, did. they have now won 13 straight wins in all competitions and uh, unbeaten in their last 20. Um, on Sunday, Man City and Liverpool face off in one of the more highly anticipated games of the year. At this point... As you said, Ivanica, it doesn't look great for Liverpool. Um, they're seven points behind. City have a game in hand. And you said earlier that you don't you don't really think that Liverpool can mount a title challenge at this point. I have two questions for you on, on the, the league title. One is, do you believe that Manchester United has enough to stay in the title race the rest of the season? Because I thought, as of a couple of days ago, I just didn't think that United is consistent enough or explosive enough to to get three points consistently off of the mid kind of table teams that you need. And then they beat Southampton nine nil, and so now I'm I'm suddenly questioning everything. And as far as City versus Liverpool go, 
do you feel more that Liverpool are where they are because City has been that good or because Liverpool has been, by their standards, that poor? Uh, sure. So um, let's talk about uh, Manchester United first. Uh, sorry to all the Liverpool fans out there. Um, <laughs> but uh, shout out here to uh, my friend Noel over at the Liverpool offside who reminded me that United are refusing to stop looking legit um, he said six weeks ago it was easy to think they were having a good run and they would fall off, but it was it's been six weeks and they're still winning, uh, which is terrible news Very for true. the universe. <laughs> um, I must remind everybody that Southampton lost nine 0 to Leicester as well, so maybe this is all Southampton's fault. No, I fall. know. <laughs> as opposed to maybe, I giving, maybe Southampton is not the best barometer for anything. As opposed to giving any credit to to Ole Gunnar Solskjaer at all. I mean, let's just not <laughs> do that. Uh, a friend of mine joked in a text. They were like, you know, you got to hand hand it to Southampton. They simply will not lose by 10 goals, no matter what, you know, and, and, and they have real limits yeah. there. You know. Not by anyway. 10, not by eight, but nine is the holy number. Um, but right. uh, in terms of uh, United, uh, I do not personally think that they can mount a title challenge. Uh for two reasons. Uh, first, be- firstly, being that I don't believe that they're consistent enough and secondly, uh, City is in a rampage mode at this point, uh, Man City. And I don't believe that United can overtake them unless something terrible transpires. Uh, and Man City is sort of hit with, you know, massive injuries within a short span of time. I don't see them uh, beating them to the title at this point. In terms of Liverpool being where they are, uh, whether it's because of their own poor form or because of uh, City, I think it's a bit of both. But it's it's more the former. It's 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 Liverpool's uh, massive injury crisis and the the impact that's had on their the shape that they play the the areas of the field from where they've been attacking. Uh, I think all of that has a lot more to do with their current form. Um, and I feel like that's to blame for the most part uh, for them not being in the title race anymore. And if we are to talk about Man City for a few minutes, uh, you know, I'd be happy to do that. They they deserve that amount of podcast time. They started the season poor, but uh, as you've mentioned, they've had some 13 consecutive wins at this point, uh, despite having no strikers uh, with Aguero uh, not being fit. But what they've done this season is... Uh, after their initial uh, defensive troubles, they brought in reinforcements in the form of Ruben Diaz, who is now partnering John Stones, who is now having a massive revival in form. So the Diaz and Stones partnership has made them incredibly defensively solid. And as a result, they have, the I think, the best defensive record in the Premier League this season, which is incredible. Not unusual for them, but that's it's still incredible considering where they were um, a few months ago. They're also seeing incredible form from a bunch of different players, from Ilke Gundogan to Phil Foden to Joao Cancelo. So there's a number of people hitting peak form all at the same time. And I think prior to this pod, Jonah had mentioned uh, Kevin De Bruyne, who's one of my favorite players in the league. Uh, incredible. I mean, I've, I've personally lusted after him and wanted him to move to Liverpool more times than I can count. He was a Liverpool <laughs> fan as a kid. There is a famous photograph that gets circulated of him as like a youth player. And there's like a 
a screen caption of him talking and and saying that his 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 favorite club is Liverpool. So everybody, let's just oh. let's just remember that at all times. <laughs> um, but uh, this season he's been plagued by injury again. So um, I don't know if we're seeing uh, sort of the peak levels that De Bruyne can offer. I mean, last season he had the highest number of assists and was just stellar throughout the season. So. Yeah, definitely one of my favorite players, but unfortunately hit by injury this season. But City's squad depth is so immense. Uh, their combination of young players as well as experienced players just makes them a difficult team to beat. Um, if their A team isn't functioning, their B and C teams are are, are capable of performing at an incredibly high level. So um, yeah, they're probably going to win the title this season. I'll tell you why I'm still worried about Liverpool. Um, not really their form so much, but I remember early in the season when City were struggling a lot as this season first unfolded. They had some COVID-related um, problems. Sergio Aguero has not been able to stay on the pitch for a, a, quite a while now with sorted injuries and COVID issues. But when the season began and City were, were off to a lot of struggles, there were a lot of weeks where you would realize that like Liverpool had not pulled away and even though city were struggling, they weren't out of, they weren't out of reach yet. Um, like in past years, Liverpool, if they went up like seven, eight points, like you're, you're never going to catch them because no one in the league is going to take points off them. But as city continued to struggle, they were, they were always kind of in that six, seven point range and they had a game in hand. And so I wonder, you're right that City is in rampant form and they do have tremendous depth and they're continuing to play even without Aguero, even with De Bruyne now being out with his injuries. But I keep thinking to myself, if Liverpool win Sunday, they're four points back. City still have a game in hand, but like, let's say City draw. Then there's a five point difference with about 16 games left. They're five points back and they're going to play City again. I, I I definitely can see how when your team is just has the the significant injuries that they've dealt with that it's it's hard to imagine them just sustaining a great run and City does look like this might be one of those runs but I just think that a bad two weeks for City and a good two weeks for Liverpool then they could be right back in it with with some momentum. I mean, yes, uh, that's the magic of the Premier League, right? I mean, the most competitive league in the world uh at this point we've had uh i think some nine different teams um in first place uh, already this season um such has been the nature of of uh, competition in england this year um in terms of liverpool catching up of course nothing has been mathematically determined or ruled out yet so when liverpool won the premier league there was a point where the points gulf uh, was so high i think we won the the earliest premier league title uh, in in a long time and pretty early in the season um we had mathematically uh won the league before actually winning the league so to speak uh so that hasn't happened yet for city or that hasn't been uh, ruled out for liverpool yet completely in terms of our own depth um diogo jota is out injured and he's been somewhat of a, a wild card this this season moved over from Wolverhampton Wanderers he hit his stride immediately fit right into Jurgen Klopp's game and scored something like seven goals in nine appearances for Liverpool which is 
incredible, particularly for a new signing for Jurgen Klopp. I mean, signings in this team take some time to settle in, but Jota needed no time at all. So he is going to return from injury hopefully soon. And he brings an element of unpredictability to our game, considering people are now quite familiar with our usual attacking front three. Mm-hmm. So there are, there are glimmers of, of hope uh, for Liverpool. But what's also important to mention is uh, for a team which is struggling with squad depth, as we are right now, Champions League games are going to be resuming soon. So there's going to be a packed fixture list uh, Champions League games are challenging and traveling to various places right now with COVID restrictions uh, takes its own sort of toll. So um, there are a number of, uh, you know, potential obstacles that could come up. So it could go either way, but I, I am still keeping my hopes extremely uh, surface level at this point. So here, let me ask you, you said earlier, you spoke of the folly of hope as a Liverpool fan. If Liverpool pull out a a two to one win in the 89th minute, and it's just this beautiful victory. Will you be back on the train? Will you be once again saying, you know what? I could see this happening. I really could. Clear eye. I will not. Yeah. Uh, one thing. <laughs> one thing. One thing that you learn as one thing. One thing that you learn as a Liverpool fan is is our culture of tragedy, embodied by our our former hero Steven Gerrard and the fans have sort of internalized that as well and we 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 briefly sort of set that aside over the past couple of years with Jurgen Klopp's incredible run but we've been reminded of it over the past few couple of months or so now um, Ivanka my question for you is which is more likely you know if you were a betting person that uh lesser or Tottenham win the Premier League, or that Marcus Rashford, the forward from Manchester United, is elected the next head of the Labour Party, you know, after Keir Starmer. Which of those do you think <laughs> is more, uh, you know, more possible if you if you were a betting person? It's more possible that Rashford gets elected the next head of the Labour Party. He could be the Prime point. Minister. He's very popular, you know. He's, he's he's incredibly popular. He's uh, got his heart in the right place. His uh, communication skills and uh, mobilization skills are incredible. Definitely more likely than Leicester or Jose Mourinho's Tottenham Hotspur uh, winning the league <laughs> this year. No doubts. I like that response. Um, a Chelsea question for you. Chelsea being Chelsea have once again fired a manager, in this case, club legend Frank Lampard. They replaced him with, I do not know if I'm pronouncing his name right, Thomas Tuchel um, or Tuchel. Chelsea currently eighth in the league, well behind Liverpool for the last Champions League spot. Do you feel, part of me sees this and thinks negatively towards Chelsea. I feel like this is so typical of Chelsea. Lampard has not even been there that long. Uh, Seemed to have inspired some some good feelings, and boom, they fire him. But on the other hand, Chelsea generally threw all the volatility. Like after Liverpool and City, have probably had more success than any other team at the top level in the last ten years. So although they are always in chaos, sometimes it seems to pay off. Did you view there? Do you think any of the problems facing Chelsea this season have come down to the manager? Do you think it, it matters that they've gone in this different direction now? 
I think it's it definitely comes down to to the manager, uh, their choice of manager. But it's not entirely the fault of the manager that they chose. I mean, Frank Lampard had experience at Derby County before this, uh, but had no managerial experience at uh, the highest level in any of the world's leagues. So it was signing him on was uh, sort of a short term fix or sort of a, a a fan appeasing sort of uh, decision by Chelsea's management. Um, they were in a bit of a sticky situation. Uh, they had a transfer embargo in place uh, for a couple of years. And um, I think attracting a manager in that situation uh, who would be willing to take on that job, but also somebody who was adored by the fan base and uh, somebody who was familiar with the club uh, was proving difficult for them. So it made sense at the time, but um to manage a club of Chelsea's size, of Chelsea's budget and uh, stature when you have no experience managing in the Premier League or uh, any top league for that matter, it's, it's, it's asking too much uh, of, of anyone. Um, I'm not the great, greatest fan of Frank Lampard's personality, but I will uh, reserve some <laughs> sympathy. I will reserve some sympathy for the situation that he was put in. Um, the other thing is that uh, in terms of uh, chaos and the way forward, I mean, Thomas Tuchel, he comes from a certain pedigree. He's got experience. He's uh, managed, uh, you know, big clubs in Germany and in France. Um, and he brings a certain possession-based style uh, to the game. It's likely that he's going to know what to do with Chelsea's embarrassment of riches in terms of players at this point better than Frank Lampard did. Lampard just didn't know what to do with the 240 million pounds worth of attacking <laughs> talent. They bought every single young attacking player that Europe had to offer basically this <laughs> summer. And um, Lampard just didn't know what to do with them. Uh, he didn't know uh, what the best position to play Timo Werner was. Um, Kai Havertz uh, from Bayer Leverkusen has incredible potential, but is yet to hit that level uh, at Chelsea. So it's it's the hope is that Tuchel is going to know uh, what to do with these uh, players with his background in Germany and his general experience uh, in the game. It's probably not going to happen this season, but uh, there's definitely with that kind of depth, that kind of attacking depth, if Chelsea doesn't hit um, a higher level of performance, it'll be a lot of money, a lot of cash uh, wasted, <laughs> definitely. Ivanka, I'm wondering if I could ask you about two of the, uh, you know, good stories of, of the surprising stories of the season. Um, one is uh, West Ham United under David Moyes, the uh, who famously, you know, has had a long career as a Premier League manager, famously flamed out at Manchester United. Obviously, uh, you know, the, this, if they finished fifth, it would be... Uh, you know, and played European football next year would be a, a real surprise. And the other is Leeds, the team that won the final first division title before the Premier League was created, has had a lot of turmoil over the last couple of decades, uh, relegated, just came back to the Premier League. You know, right now they're just outside the top half of the table and uh, play a very exciting style of football. A real attacking, very aggressive. Uh, and I'm wondering what you think, which of those, if you had to choose, is the, the more surprising story of, of this season? I'll go with Leeds first, because I personally, um, 
I was happy for uh, their return to the Premier League. Although as a Liverpool fan, apparently I'm not supposed to enjoy anything about Leeds or like them in any way. But um, <laughs> I wasn't. I'm, I'm I'm not that old, and I I don't think I was around for those uh, extremely intense rivalries of the past. Um, and it's hard to, to to really dislike that team. I mean, Marcelo Bielsa, the great king of romantic football, he's considered a mentor by people like Pep Guardiola and, uh, you know, Mauricio Pochettino. They all admire him. It's a great story. It's a club from uh, a working class city with uh, an extremely passionate and tight knit fan community. So um, I'm definitely very happy that they're uh, back here playing at the highest level. Um, and you're right, they, uh, they play an incredibly exciting brand of attacking fast and furious football, which is so entertaining to watch. Um, they do have huge defensive problems, though. So uh, the number of goals that they score are practically nullified by the number of scores that goals that they concede. Um, so they're extremely porous in defense. Um, but overall, I'm not I'm not surprised by the fact that they're uh, holding up pretty well at the mid-table level. I expect them to stay up this season, and um, I'm pretty sure we're going to get to see uh, see them play next season as well in the Premier League. I don't have a whole lot to say about West Ham, but uh, considering I've never really followed them that closely as a club, but um, they're definitely the most surprising of the two. They uh, sort of have have gone through a series of underperforming, perpetually underperforming seasons uh, in the past number of years. And David Moyes, uh, it's funny, uh, there's, there's two ways of looking at somebody like David Moyes. It's easy to club him into the category of dinosaur football managers like, uh, you know, Big Sam and Tony Pulis and whatnot. <laughs> or you could actually admit that he probably is a pretty good tactician and does know how to turn a struggling team around. Well, he couldn't do that at Manchester United, but there were probably a bunch of other reasons for that. Um, I mean, who knows what happens at Old Trafford anyway. Um, but he's, he's, he's um, I think, in West Ham's revival, uh, what he's managed to do is, uh, you know, build an efficient, resilient and fit side. He's helped them build a sort of sense of identity, which they didn't really have before. And it's something that I believe their fans have demanded uh, for quite some time. He's, uh, in terms of uh, actual play, uh, West Ham has, has, under David Moyes, managed to really master set pieces. Uh, they've scored some 11 goals from set pieces uh, this season, which is quite a sort of solid record to hold. Um, they have a great defensive partnership at the back uh, with Angelo Ogbonna and Craig Dawson. Uh, Craig Dawson scored a goal from a set piece against Liverpool in their last game against us. So uh, yeah, the, the signs are all around. So uh, yeah, I mean, I mean, great for them. Even against Liverpool, to be honest, while I didn't, for the most part, think they were going to get the better of us in that game, there were moments where they showed some incredible and <laughs> I'm sorry if this is this sounds derogatory, but incredibly surprising amount of finesse in in passing mm-hmm. uh, in their passing game against Liverpool. So David Moyes has uh, sort of brought them over the the you know out of their dark times, and they're you know in the upper half of the table at this point. So yeah, good for them. But definitely the most surprising story of the two. I want to close it out, Monica, with a question about the proposed. Super League. But before we get into that question, 
Can you just define for maybe our listeners who aren't totally clear on it, because it's a fairly new story, what the Super League is, is about? Uh, sure. And uh, I'll be honest here, I'm uh, not 100%. Uh, I mean, I've also just read some very basic details. in Money. Like it's about money. Has, uh, you know. <laughs> but, yeah. Some of the biggest clubs across uh, Europe's leagues have apparently come together and there's a document that's been circulating about plans for a competition that would replace uh, the current UEFA Champions League that would be restricted to 20 clubs uh, who would uh, share revenues, which, of course, amount to uh, billions. And uh, the clubs involved in this include the Premier League's big six clubs, uh, so to speak. So that's Manchester United, Liverpool, Man City, Chelsea, Tottenham and Arsenal. And um, it's basically... Just to put it mildly, it's 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 a way for the richest clubs to come together and uh, benefit from, you know, playing against one another and becoming even richer. Although they say that this is to replace the revenues lost since the pandemic stopped football back in March. But I mean, these are clubs owned by billionaires uh, who are it's now a very looking to very replace... charitable gesture by them. Very charitable. <laughs> yeah, looking to replace revenues that they lost from fans when they're owned literally by multi-billion dollar sporting conglomerates and petro states. I mean, it's, uh, there's, there's quite a bit of dissonance in that. Um, anyway, so uh, this move has been uh, opposed by one and all. I mean, in football, as in most other sports, uh, different sporting bodies and authorities, they all have their own agenda. So uh, FIFA has opposed this. The six confederations around the world, the continental confederations have all opposed this uh, because uh, nobody doesn't want to, you know, get a piece of the pie, obviously. Um, but most interestingly and uh, sort of hearteningly is that the football supporters groups across the top clubs in Europe have made a very strong collective statement uh, condemning this proposal. And um, they've called it an unpopular, illegitimate and dangerous scheme. And they've called for a more equitable sharing of football's money, uh, which is great to see. I mean, um, typically you see fans don't really get a say in these matters despite the fact that they constitute, they literally they, they literally mm-hmm. are the body and the substance of football culture and are pouring in, uh, you know, season tickets and, and, and funds to travel to away games in, you know, other countries and sort of devoting their entire lives to this game. So considering that they are typically the least heard among the interest groups, it's great to hear that they've come together against this proposal. I do believe that in all likelihood, this is not going to work out. There are too many uh, voices in the game and there are too many uh, opposing uh, forces that's probably going to block this. But um, there will be continued attempts at some sort of reform for the situation. Um, I don't think billionaire owners of clubs are going to sit content uh, with the fact that they've lost uh, a bunch of money due to the pandemic. And there will be... um, you know, further attempts to come up with new models uh, to do this in some way or the other. Um, Similar to uh, a proposal that was floated in October 2020 uh, called Project Big Picture by Liverpool and Manchester United. Again, a very similar sort of proposal, but at the English Premier League level. Um, So we can expect to sort of have these things popping up in the future. So um, there's something about this whole Super League 
topic that, that confuses me. A few years ago, Football Institute's financial fair play, which is on the surface, um, this benevolent gesture to try to ensure that all clubs are operating in a financially responsible manner. And when the truth is, it was a way for the clubs that are already powers that be to try to entrench themselves at the top. It was a way to try to close the door on some of the projects that were going on at Manchester City, at Paris, Saint-Germain. Like, this was the old boys not wanting anyone else to get in. And it was disgusting, but it was not hard to wrap your head around. Like, they were trying to cement their privilege. I understand that. I don't like it, but I understand it. My confusion with the Super League is that it strikes me that there's no way this would be a temporary arrangement. If they can get this through... They're not going to, in two ways, like wave in two years, wave goodbye and thanks for the memories. If it has any success, it's going to remain because there's going to be more money. There's going to be more television and, and sponsorship. So my confusion is FIFA said, I, I don't remember if it was a, th a threat or if they actually voted on it, but there was a discussion at FIFA that any player who participated in the Super League would be ineligible to participate in World Cups and possibly other tournaments. I cannot imagine any player in the world giving up the chance to participate in the World Cup to play in a Super League. Now, I could be wrong, but like I can't see that happening. If that's true, then it doesn't seem sustainable to me. Like I, I believe you when, you when you said like it's going to come up again. They're going to keep pushing it. They're going to try to get something out of this. But it strikes me that you have, I think last year in the Champions League, you have just as often as you'll end up with Real Madrid against Bayern, you have a year like you have when our Red Bull Leipzig makes it all the way to the, the finals. And it's this magical, romantic story, and it's part of the appeal of the tournament. What what underdog gets to the quarterfinals and is able to... Re Everybody loves to see it. I don't understand how the Super League can end up benefiting these top teams because I, I, I can't see, like you're saying, it's it's I can't think of another instance of almost every single interest group in the world of football having the same feeling about something, but knowing that they're going up against what seems like an unstoppable force, which is the momentum of the however many richest clubs in the world. Do you think five years from now this thing is happening and that somehow FIFA, you know, once FIFA gets their cut, then they sign off on it? And, and or do you think that the scale of resistance to the idea could actually be something in a year where, in a, in a recent history that we've seen a lot of movements around the world, and I know sports doesn't typically mobilize the same way that politics inspires people, but we've seen a lot of movements of groups of people accomplishing things that we never thought were possible. Do you think there's too much money and too much power, this is going to happen one way or another? Or do you think that maybe it actually doesn't make enough sense to enough people that it could be stopped? Uh, yeah, I mean, that's uh, a great question that I unfortunately don't have the answer to. <laughs> In short, <Right. laughs> sorry, sorry for making you go on for a while. But I mean, you were summarizing uh, <laughs> everything really well there. Um, but I, I do feel like there are experts in football finances and football history uh, who would have a better response uh, to that. But um, whether this is just a, you know, sort of a momentary attempt at disruption uh, from the sort of big money players in the game or 
whether this is something that's likely to eventually be accepted if, you know, they, they sort of steamroll uh, the various governing bodies hard enough. Like I said, I don't have uh, an answer for that, but I will say it definitely doesn't seem sustainable, at least in the short and medium term. I mean, if you're talking about uh, the biggest clubs forming a super league and sharing uh, the revenues, um, the big clubs benefit from playing against smaller and uh, less successful clubs. Those clubs are typically feeder clubs for the big clubs. They sort of, they offer them competition in various tournaments. um, And they're sort of also instrumental in making the big clubs uh, successful in many ways. So to completely cut them out of the game, I don't think is in the interest of, of clubs like Liverpool and Manchester United. But yeah, that said, I am not sure what kind of schemes uh, the various billionaire owners are going to come up with uh, in the coming years. Uh, that will definitely be interesting, uh, whether we reach uh, sort of a tipping point where uh, the frustration of, you know, the the wealthy, the bankrolling owners uh, of the rich clubs versus uh, the stubbornness of the governing bodies and fans, uh, whether one outweighs the other, um, that will be interesting. And I feel like... Uh, a football historian would probably be more equipped to comment on that based on how these booms and busts have operated in football in the past. And But yeah, it's something I'd definitely be interested to hear more about. Yeah. Excellent. Well, Avanika Goswami, thank you again for your time and all of your insights into all these global soccer issues. Uh, we've really, really enjoyed having you on the program and When we get around to discussing football again, we will definitely get in touch with you. Uh, Absolutely. Uh, This was great fun and uh, good luck to the Jacobin Sports Show. I I hope I can come back someday and I wish you guys the greatest success. Oh, you too. Thank you so much, Monica. All right. Okay. That is going to be the wrap for another episode. Again, uh, remember to follow the Jacobin Sports Show on Twitter at Jacobin Sports and email us with any thoughts, questions, suggestions at jacobinsports at gmail.com. I am Matthew Miranda signing off for Jonah Birch and our producer, Connor Gillies. We will be back in about a week with the next episode. So until then, love and light to you all and take care.